Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. I work out at the Sports Center. There's been a commercial that's been on Sports Center for a year plus now of all these former athletes who have gained an awful lot of weight. So they talk about how this new diet plan that they're on now has helped them lose, you know, 75 pounds or 50 pounds or 45 pounds. And here's, you know, Dan Marino out there and his pants are out to here and now they're in here. Here's a picture of somebody else and here's him on a golf course and his pants are out to here and now they're into here. And he's telling you, you know, you got to try this because you can try this. You're going to lose 35 pounds. You're going to be in great shape. And I know lots of people who do this. They try this diet or that diet. They're on the Atkins diet. They're on the chocolate diet. They're on whatever diet they can find to try to get their body in shape. And they often have the before picture and the after picture. This is what I used to look like, and life was miserable. My life was going nowhere. Now I've lost 45 pounds, and look at me. I look great. Life is fantastic. Well, that's not true. It's important to be in shape. That's why I work out every day. But once you get in shape, then what? So the image that I had today was something like a before or after Before was, my life used to be a mess. My desires were haywire. I lived life kind of out of a knee-jerk reaction. Temptation came, and I remember uh, my first pastor, someone asked him what the best thing to do to fight temptation. He says, give in and then just repent. (laughs) I thought, wow, I kind of like that, actually. (laughs) I don't know how theologically sound that is, but that appeals to me. He's a wise man, you know. He's 80-some years old now. Most of us lived life for many years like that, and some of us, most of us still live life that way. It might be wrestling temptations to eat, might be wrestling temptations to gamble, might be wrestling temptations to pornography, might be wrestling temptations to anger, to envy, to a whole set of things. And, and we find ourselves somehow enslaved by some of these different things in our lives that we don't find ourselves able to master. And so this is a before and after That's why the life of virtue is so appealing to me. Because once my life was a mess, and now it's calm. At least that's what we're shooting for. Inner calm, where everything is well-ordered. And I'm living well. And that changes everything, whether I'm 40 pounds overweight or whether I'm 10 pounds underweight. What we want is to be in shape personally, not just physically. I'm always reminded of the uh, comment made by one of the fathers of the church that we are our own parents, morally speaking just to say that the actions that we freely choose to do make us to be who we are, which is a very sobering thought. I am who I am according to what I do, not in terms of what my profession is, according to what I choose to do. And thanks be to God, one of the things that I can choose to do is to repent because oftentimes I've chosen to do things which would make me to be the kind of man I do not want to be. So that's why the topic that we're doing tonight is, I think, so important. It's really meant to help us ask a very simple question. And the question is, what is the purpose of life on earth? If you were to answer that right now without answering it out loud, how would you answer it? Why did God make you? What does he want for you? I just want you to think about that. I love the Baltimore Catechism, but don't give me the Baltimore Catechism's answer. What is the purpose of life on earth? Life here is a drama. I think it's George Weigel who, in talking about uh, Pope John Paul II's theology, often used to talk about how the Pope would try to get us to understand that life is a drama and that the dramatic tension is the man that I am now and the man that I want to be. And every day we're living in that tension between who we are and who we want to be. I have so many friends who have personal trainers. We've probably got some personal trainers here in the room, people who do that for a living. They train other people. It's a great thing. It's most important to get the body in shape. I happen to find it in my own life to be kind of a key for being able to pray. It's very helpful for me to pray after I've worked out. It just helps me. It calms me somehow. Even scripture says, Paul says to Timothy, train yourself in godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Note what he says there. Godliness holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Oftentimes, especially when you're asking kids, I do this a lot when we have masses with the kids in the school, why is it that we should be good? And the answer oftentimes is, well, so that we can get to heaven. Okay, is there any payoff now? And they're always hard-pressed to answer that. 
because there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of payoff now to actually striving to live a good life. Getting ourselves into shape, not simply physically, but personally. In doing that, we learn how to be good, to be well, to be whole. And that's what tonight's about. What is virtue? We say that often, but what does it mean to be virtuous? Virtue is, uh, Peeper calls it this, and I love this definition, it's health of the soul. We all want to be healthy. And the soul here isn't that thing that's floating around inside me. The soul is my person, who I am. It's directly connected, I think, with the question of what does it mean to be human, which is, again, the question, what is the purpose of life here on earth? Many of my problems in life come because we focus on what it is that I'm supposed to do right now before I'm trying to focus on what it is I'm supposed to be. For example, in marriage, we're always trying to figure out, okay, what can I do to be a better husband or what can I do to be a better wife? And those are good questions. But the question that you first need to ask is, what does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a wife? And then only after really coming to know that can I know what it is that I'm supposed to do. There's a philosophical axiom that action follows being. We're in trouble oftentimes in our culture because we don't spend any time thinking about being. We just want to talk about doing. And that's problematic because oftentimes we're doing reactions as opposed to really learning what it is that we're supposed to be doing. The answer from both ancient pagans and Christians was the same as to what does it mean to be human. And their answer was it means to be virtuous. So that's what we're going to look at. The soul has something like a structure to it. In a very simplified way, we can say that there is within the soul three things, desire, will, and reason. Problems happen in our lives because our desires are not in accord with reason. Reason here doesn't mean, you know, cold calculating thought. Reason means reality, the way things really are. So in order for us to be virtuous, it means that my desires are led by my will, which is in accord with reason. When that happens, my life is ordered. And we can probably all hopefully quickly think of some examples when my desires are led by my will, which is not in accord with reason. And the desires are downright unreasonable, but we don't seem to be strong enough or capable enough to live the way we know we should. So misery happens when the the order is kind of out of whack, technically so. But when it does happen, when the desires are led by the will, which is informed by reason, then we're happy. And happiness is the key. I mean, what's the purpose of life on earth? To be happy. That's why God made me. If you read the Magnificat, there was a great reflection yesterday from Blessed John the 23rd. And there was a line in there that struck me where he talks about something to the effect of, remind me, Lord, that you made me not only for happiness in the life to come, but for happiness now. And way too often, we don't focus on that enough. The Lord made me to be happy now. But the problem is, we tend to think of happiness as a subjective feeling, which is largely dependent upon external conditions, which basically amounts to maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. But happiness, in its true sense, in the classical sense of the word happiness, happiness is an objective condition which has nothing to do with external situations in my life. It has to do with my person being conformed to the good. And when that's the case, then I become happy. That's an objective state. There is more to tonight's topic, though, than just our own personal happiness, whether it's here or in the hereafter. It also deals very much with the future. Kreeft, in his book, Back to Virtue, has this great little quote from Confucius that maybe some of us are aware of. He says, if there's harmony in the heart, there will be harmony in the family. If there is harmony in the family, there will be harmony in the nation. And if there is harmony in the nation, then there will be harmony in the world. So if you think right now about the bioethical mess that we're in with the scientific capacity that we have for cloning or for the destruction of human embryos, for spare parts, or any of the other things that we can do now, The solution isn't to unlearn all of that. That's here. It's not going anywhere, the knowledge that we have. The solution is to have that knowledge be formed by the good, to be led by the good. That's what we need right now. We need to learn to live virtuous lives and have virtuous physicians and scientists and researchers and lawmakers so that we can live the happy lives that we were made for. Okay, let's look a little bit at sin, shall we? Sin is, quite clearly, alluring, packaged really nicely. It's glossy, it's shiny, it promises so much. The best definition of sin I've ever heard, again, comes from George Weigel, where he says, sin is merely the failure to live freedom excellently. And I love that definition for a lot of reasons. One of them is because it somehow helps sin to lose its luster. 
Who wants to be a failure? I don't want to be a failure. Who doesn't want to live excellently? I don't want to live mediocre. Who wants to be enslaved? No one wants to be enslaved. So one of the first steps, I think, for us in trying to get a handle on sin is to somehow demystify it and just to hold it up for what it is. It's just a failure. It's not attractive. It's misery. It's mediocrity. It doesn't lead to happiness. We want to look a little bit here at the seven deadly sins. Seven deadly sins are also known as the seven capital sins, not because they're all embodied in Washington, D.C., although they are. (laughs) Capital just comes from the Latin word for head. And so just as the head leads the body, the idea behind the capital sins are that these lead to other sins. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote that a capital vice is that which has an exceedingly desirable end so that in his desire for it, a man goes on to the commission of many sins all of which are said to originate in that vice as their chief source. So they're capital not because they're so grave. They're capital because uh, they give rise to so many other sins. I think that's a helpful distinction just to make as we begin. They are not found altogether in one place in Scripture. You're not going to look to you know, 1 Corinthians 14 and find, here's the seven deadly sins. But all seven of these deadly sins or capital sins are found in Scripture and are warned against. And what I've done is just list them We could probably put a number of scripture passages to all of them, but I've put one or two that maybe we can ponder over and pray with, because I don't want tonight simply to just be something where we learn, and hopefully the goal of tonight is for us to continue to be transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus. So we start with pride. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, after he tells the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who go off to the temple to pray, one of whom raises his eyes and looks up at God, and he actually prays to himself. And says, I thank you that I am not like other men, not even like this tax collector over here. And he goes on to list all that he does. And then the tax collector, who's also in the temple, as we remember from the parable, has his head down and beats his breast and says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. And at the end of that passage comes this quote, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Pride is quite simply the greatest sin. We tend to live in an age where we think sexual sin is the greatest sin. It's not. It's actually probably the most understandable because it's a sin of weakness. It's grave. We'll get into that. But it's probably the most understandable sin, especially living in this culture right now where it is all around us. Pride is the greatest of sins. It is hell's sin. It's a purely spiritual sin. Maybe just a little sidebar there. Oftentimes I hear people say, you know, about a family member or a friend or whatnot. Well, you know, they do some odd things, but they're a very spiritual person, as if somehow that's the goal in life. But the goal in life is not to be spiritual. The goal in life is to be holy. Satan is a pure spirit. The demons are pure spirits. They're not achieving holiness. You and I shouldn't be striving for spirituality. We should be striving for holiness. And holiness means belonging to the Lord, letting his claim on our lives take hold of every dimension of us. And none of us is there yet, certainly not me. So we don't want to be spiritual, we want to be holy. Pride is a purely spiritual sin. It is the desire to be God. It puts self before God. It loves the self, Crest says, with all the heart, all the mind, all the soul, all the strength. It denies the fact that I'm a creature something that is oh so hard for us in this life. This is why St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica has this great passage where he's talking about pride. And he says, is pride the most serious of sins? And he says that the seriousness of pride is shown by the fact that God often uses as a remedy sins of the flesh, which are evidently more shameful, but in fact less serious, to cure the person of pride. Much like he says a physician will give an illness, in like an antidote, to someone who's sick to cure them of a greater illness. That's a fantastic passage to remember. Whenever we struggle with sins of the flesh, whatever they are, there are many. Oftentimes it can be, not always, but oftentimes it can be God just tapping us on the shoulder going, you know what, maybe you should just examine where you are as regards humility. And sins of the flesh, because they are so evidently shameful, have a way just drastically of reminding us, oh yeah, I'm just a creature, aren't I? I thought I had all this control, but obviously I don't. So God uses that as a remedy. 
It says, my will be done, not God's. People often confess pride. I think they often confuse it with vanity. Pride is not vanity. Vanity is concerned with what other people think of them. Pride could care less. Many times when we confess pride, I think what we're really confessing is we're insecure. I'm so insecure that I'm dependent upon the opinions of others. What I look like, where I live, whatever it is. Pride couldn't give a flip about the opinion of others. Pride doesn't even think of others. It's just consumed with self. That's what pride really is. Celebrities, for example, are vain. Some of them might be proud too, but they're vain. They thrive on hearing how wonderful they are. Being on the covers of magazines, being in the public eye, being in the headlines, whatever. That's vanity, not pride. Again, it is Kreft who says dictators are the ones who are proud. Dictators are ones who impose their will on others, who want to be in control. That's pride, and that's where we can more easily identify with it. Pride manifests itself in me usually when I am trying to impose myself on others or impose my will on others. When I'm trying to be in control of everything without any kind of care or consideration for those in my life, whether it's my children, my parish, my students, my players, it keeps us from knowing God, who alone can lead me to the fullness of life and to happiness, because it doesn't care about God. It puts itself in the place of God. That is why it is so deadly. Second deadly sin, avarice, which is rarely confessed, I have to say. Some of these are rarely confessed, as a matter of fact. Avarice is also covetousness or greed. Two passages that jumped out for me in the New Testament. One from 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, a passage, at least the end of which we know very well. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. Not money, the love of money, the desire for money. The inordinate desire to have things is the root of all evils. James builds on this in uh, the fourth chapter of his letter. He says, what causes wars? What causes fighting among you? Is it not your passions that are at war with your members? You desire and you do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. Note that avarice is way ahead of lust. In fact, Jesus talks more about avarice in the Gospels than he talks about any other sin. This is what is occupying his mind as he speaks to us. It's defined as the immoderate desire for temporal possessions which can be estimated in money. Not the desire, the immoderate desire. Much of the seven capital sins all have to do with this lack of moderation. The immoderate desire for temporal possessions. What it does is it makes things into gods, makes means into ends. And it's simply foolish because it foolishly thinks that the things which I am desiring will make me happy. But they can't make me happy. Things don't satisfy. Persons satisfy. The only thing that satisfies is love. I can't buy love. That's why this is such a foolish sin. Look at those who uh, have so much wealth. Look at the people who are the celebrities in our culture right now. Look at their lives. Just pick anybody who's been in the headlines over the last two months They're in and out of rehab centers. They're addicted to things. Their lives end in suicide. They're in and out of relationships. Their lives are a mess. And they have more wealth than most of us could ever imagine. Possessions are clearly not the answer. They don't make you happy. I was fortunate growing up to live in a family that was very prosperous. My father was very successful. We were very well off. We had a lot of things. It made for some entertaining nights, I'll tell you that much. We had some nice luxuries. We could do some things that some other people couldn't. But it was a great lesson as a child growing up to know, you know what, this is nice, but this ain't it. I had more toys than probably any of my friends. I was probably the kid who was the most bored. I'm always struck by the fact that there is no word for boredom in any ancient language. Isn't that amazing? There's no word for boredom in an ancient language. Boredom first shows up either like the end of the 17th, beginning of the 18th century. It's tied to the Industrial Revolution. I find that hysterical. We are the culture that has more things, more money, more possessions than any other culture. You won't find a higher suicide rate than amongst certain individuals in this country who have more than any other people in the world. We have all this stuff And all it does is make us feel lonelier. Because even though my BMW can talk to me, or at least tell me that my gas is low, that my oil needs to be changed, 
it can't say I love you. And even if you programmed it to say that, it wouldn't be able to love me. There's a great commentary in the second commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a molten image and bow down in front of it. There is a way of translating that passage which says you shall not let it make you bow down in front of it. That's a very different reading. What the Lord's trying to say to us in that commandment is not only should we not make images for ourselves, but don't let anything out there, don't let any creature reduce you to a slave. And we do this all the time. We save up, we buy the car, then we buy the car and we park it way over in the corner. (laughs) Why? Because I don't want you hitting my car, that's why. And then all of a sudden I come out and you've taken your key and you've gone up and down my car and you've carved your name in it and now I am ticked. Why? Because you did something to a thing. Somehow I've let this thing turn the tables and make me bow down in front of it. And that happens in our lives with lots of different things. You shall not let it make you bow down in front of it. Because you don't bow to anything except for the Lord your God. You are not a slave. You are created in the image and likeness of God. Didn't make you for that. Made you to worship me. And in worshiping me, you actually find freedom and fulfillment, not slavery. With avarice, we end up worshiping created things and not the creator. What's the danger of riches? John Henry Newman used to preach extensively on this. He has a great sermon that you can probably find easily online called The Danger of Riches. The danger of riches is that it apes self-sufficiency. It fosters the illusion that you don't need God. And that is just that. It is an illusion. You need God. You are utterly dependent upon God. You are utterly dependent upon his generosity and his goodness and his mercy and his love. If he does not give you breath right now, you do not have it. And when we have all of our wealth, it hinders us from remembering that. That's why when storms come into our lives, they actually become great gifts. Because they wake us up out of the illusion that I'm not in control, that I'm not sufficient, that I need help, that I need God. Third deadly sin, envy. Envy is not jealousy. The passage that came to mind is uh, the passage in the book of Wisdom in the Old Testament, where the author says, By the envy of the devil, death entered the world. And all who are in his possession experience it. Jealousy is seeing what someone else has and wanting it. There are certain things you're supposed to be jealous of. You should be jealous of the saints. Nothing wrong with that. Be jealous of the holiness that they have. Because hopefully it's attractive and you aspire to it. There's nothing wrong with that. Envy is of a completely different kind. Envy is defined as sorrow at another's good. And this is not nearly enough confessed. How many of us are sorrowful over the good in other people's lives? Your marriage is better than mine. Your house is nicer than mine. I have sorrow over the fact that you have the freedom in your life to do all the things that you do. And on and on and on and on. It's a sadness at the fact that someone else's life is going well. And because mine's not, I don't want yours going well either. It's essentially competitive. It wants you beneath me. That's what envy wants. I'm not content so long as there's anybody who's got anything over me. So what makes me happy is somehow knowing that I'm miserable, but so are you. In fact, you're even more miserable than me. And I find delight out of that. Here's my confession. I experience this in very perverse ways on Saturdays in football season. Michigan lost, son of a gun, so did state, okay? Tonight I'm going to be happy because you're not. I'm going to wake up not wanting to read the paper, but so are you. How pathetic is that? And yet, that's a real thing for many of us. It's a real thing in my life. The cure for envy is gratitude. We don't spend anywhere near enough time saying thank you to God. It should be the first word out of our mouth when we're conscious in the morning. Thank you. First word as we walk past the crucifix. Thank you. As we're looking back on the day, thank you. Morning by morning, the scriptures say, new mercies do I see. The reason why it's so deadly is it leads to hatred, because it hates the other for having good. I despise you for what you have in your life, and I would be much happier if you were where I am. Fourth deadly sin is anger or wrath. And the passage that I gave there comes from Ephesians. I use it because it's a helpful passage, I think. Paul writes, be angry but do not sin, which immediately tells us it's possible to be angry and not be sinful. God gets angry. Jesus got angry. Got angry in the temple when he made the court of whips. In fact, to certain things, the appropriate response is anger. Child abuse, the appropriate response is anger. To the destruction of children in their mother's wombs, the appropriate response is anger. 
to injustice against the poor or oppression of people, the appropriate response is anger. So anger in and of itself isn't the problem. It's anger that becomes sinful. Anger is not an emotion. Emotions aren't sins. Feelings aren't sins. Feelings are just feelings. can't control your feelings. You can control what you do with your feelings. You can't control your emotions in the same sense as you can't control your feelings, but you can control what you do with your emotions. For sin to be sin, my will has to be involved. So sin only occurs when the will is involved. Anger is not hatred. Anger leads to hatred. That's why it's a capital sin. Hatred is not a capital sin because it's not the source of anything. It's the end of sin. Satan is pure hatred. That's why hatred's not a capital sin. It doesn't lead to anything else. Everything else leads to it. Thomas defines anger, this will sound uh, perhaps a little confusing, but anger is the desire to hurt another for the purpose of just retribution, motivated by some injury inflicted by that other and perceived as unjust by the angry man. The key there is to hurt another. It can be sinful because what I perceive to be a just motivation might be wrong. So Al Capone, who's shooting people in the 1930s in the streets of Chicago, if you ask him, he would say he has just reason to be doing this. Something's annoyed him. And so he thinks he's acting in response. He's giving to the people what they deserve. Again, we could say lots more on all of these, but in the interest of time, we'll keep going. Fifth capital sin is sloth. This is never confessed. (laughs) This is not the little animal that climbs in the trees, okay? That's a sloth. I mean, I'm 12 years old, and I don't think I've ever heard anybody confess sloth. Let's see if after tonight we'll begin. I think you will, because I think you hear it and you go, oh, oh, that's me. And the passage that comes to mind is in Revelations 3.16 in one of Jesus' letters to the seven churches. He says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Sloth is not laziness. Laziness is not a deadly sin. It's not something to aspire to, but it's not a deadly sin. (laughs) Laziness is the sorrow over spiritual goods or the sorrow connected with achieving holiness. It's like looking at, oh, that would be way too much work. I don't want to do that. It's like a joylessness in God who is the greatest joy. It's the sense that the greatest good that's out there, the Lord, doesn't bring me any good. And so I'm just bored with God, which means I'm going to be bored with the rest of life. If I'm bored with God, I'm going to be bored with the rest of life because God's got the monopoly on happiness. The way to think of it would be something like, when faced with my ultimate joy, God, my response is something like, mm -hmm." it's summarized in the word whatever. (laughs) Sloth lacks passion and it's rampant. It's the sin of us who aren't passionate about life. Even someone who's passionate about evil is better off. Someone who's on that extreme can get moved. I say to kids all the time when I give them talks, there's two things you can't answer in this talk. You can't answer, I don't know, and you can't answer, whatever. (laughs) Those are unacceptable. Use those, I hit you with a ruler. (laughs) Or I have sister hit you with a ruler. (laughs) It's deadly because it's a sin against charity. It's a sin against God. Because it robs us of our appetite for God. Stops us from seeking him. Finds God to be joyless. It is a sin of omission, not of commission. I'm not doing anything here. I'm doing nothing here. And it's destructive. And many of us, when faced with the challenge of we know all these things that we should do to aspire to holiness or to get our lives moving towards holiness, our response is like, oh, that would take so much effort. I don't know that I want to do that. That's sloth. I'm sad over the fact that I have to put aside all these things to move towards God. Then comes lust. And while there are a plethora of passages to choose from in the Gospels about avarice, There really aren't a plethora to choose from as about lust. There are a few, and it is capital, to be sure. passage that uh, I'm sure most of us would come to mind with is in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, it is very important, I think, to stress and to realize that this is a sin of weakness. A good friend of mine who's now deceased, a priest, always used to say, You know what, I I get sexual sin, but I don't get malice. Because malice, you've got to plan. Not all sexual sin is a sin of weakness. Some sexual sin you plan, okay? But usually it's a sin of weakness, whereas malice is something that you are premeditating and you're pondering and you are really planning and plotting to just give somebody what they deserve or what you think they deserve, whereas lust is usually something of a different kind. 
Thomas used to talk about how it deals with the most intensive pleasures, which he says tends to absorb the mind more than other things. And certainly uh, sex is a substitute for God. The two things which are very intensely spiritual, which this culture runs to, are music and sex, especially teens. Because teens, like all the rest of us, are made with this hunger for God. Because God is absent for so many of them. And no one's ever helped them find the Lord or help them to understand what the Lord has to offer us. They go to those things which are experienced so intensely. And music is very intense and very spiritual. That's why it provokes the reactions within us that it does. And sex is obviously the same. So it is the substitute for God. Lust is not sexual desire. Sexual desire is a good thing. God intended it. That's not the problem. People oftentimes, I think, they come to confession, they confess lust, but what they're really saying is, I was attracted to someone. That's not sinful either. To appreciate beauty is not lust. To bring the beauty back into my mind and to hold it in front of my eyes and then to fantasize about it, that's lust. So the image that I often use for myself and in confession is our mind is like a, uh, like a train track. And train tracks have trains that run up and down, them. especially if you live in Plymouth, you hear them all the time. <laughs> so on a train track, trains come up and down. So the mind is like the train track and up and down the mind go images. That's what happens in a mind. That's all right. That's what happens. Sin happens when, going back to the little train image, the little guy walks out from the train station and the train's coming down and says, whoa, why don't you just stop right here for a little while and you look a little low on water, we can refuel you and, you know, we'll walk around the caboose and (laughs) see if you need any supplies. And That's when it becomes sinful. When the mind sees the thoughts coming and it just says, that's a really nice looking thought. Stop. And then I entertain it. Now my will's involved. Now it's sinful. But it's not the mere appreciation of beauty. My same friend who's dead now, who used to talk about how he understands sexual sin, he used to say whenever he would see a beautiful woman walk by, the way he would help the little man inside the train was uh, simply to say, hello, pretty lady. (laughs) And that was it. It was just this way to acknowledge, okay, that's a beautiful woman. The response to that is not to go, oh, put on a burqa, (laughs) because you're an occasion of sin for me. That's not healthy. That doesn't esteem women, doesn't esteem men. So there's nothing wrong with appreciating. There's a problem with this desire to make the person to be an object for my pleasure. That's the problem. Aquinas is the master in all this. Uh, He says, man can't live without joy. Therefore, he says, when he's deprived of true spiritual joy, it's necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. That's our youth again. We're made for joy. That's what God wants us for. The problem is, so many of us aren't taught where joy is really found. So the solution to battling lust isn't just to try harder. The solution is to find God, to find the one who's truly joyful. That's the solution. Just trying harder is only going to get you focusing more on what it is you're trying to do, which is only going to keep the thoughts in your head, which isn't going to help you. The solution is to focus our love on God, who is our real joy. So so lust can be defined as a disordered desire for or inordinate enjoyment of sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure isn't wrong. The inordinate enjoyment of it, the inordinate enjoyment of it is wrong. Okay, last, gluttony. Gluttony, much like lust, can be defined as inordinate is the key here, is eating or drinking inordinately. Why is it deadly? It's deadly because it can turn man away from his true end, which is God, and make the pleasure of gluttony into his end. It's deadly because it's motivated by an awareness that I am empty. And so it wants to fill something. But what it does is it fills the stomach. And what I need to do is to fill the person. And what I need to fill the person with is the love of God. Not with a thing. Not with alcohol. Not with chocolate. Not with whatever. It's this dangerous illusion that thinks that we can satisfy ourselves by stuffing our stomachs. That's the danger of it. Okay, nothing sin. Let's go take a shower. We'll look at virtue. We're going to look at um, the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues. Cardinal virtues don't mean that they come from Cardinal Maida or that they were invented in St. Louis. Cardinal comes from the Latin word cardis or hinges. The idea is here that these virtues are the ones which everything else swings on in life in order for you and I to live a virtuous life. So just like the capital sins serve as sources for other sins, so the cardinal virtues serve as the hinges or the sources for us to put into practice the other virtues. They're first formulated by Plato, but Plato didn't invent them any more than Newton invented gravity. He just found a way to articulate it. So did Plato. These are all accessible to human reason. And just like the deadly sins, you're not going to turn to John 15:13 and find these are the four cardinal virtues, but all the virtues are found in the scriptures. 
They come as a result of God's grace and our hard work, much like sanctity. Aquinas was asked once, how does one become a saint? And his answer was, you will it. The only reason that I am not holy yet is because I do not will it enough. That's a little sobering, but encouraging at the same time. It means I can, because the grace is there. The grace is always there. I'm going to go through these quick, and then we're going to look at the theological virtues. I want to deal more with temperance than with the rest of them, even though the most important of the four cardinal virtues is prudence. The cardinal virtues aren't arbitrarily put into an order or rank. They're very particularly ordered. Prudence is the most important of the cardinal virtues. Unfortunately, prudence today is really misunderstood. Someone comes home from work and says, ah, yeah, we got this little fight in the office, and I didn't think it would be prudent to say boom, boom, boom. That's not prudence, typically, the way we would use that word in that kind of a of a sentence. Prudence can be defined as the perfected ability to make right decisions. And this is where, when we're looking at the virtues, hopefully, anyway, what we're doing as we paint the image of what it is that we should look like as men and women, hopefully we see these and we go, oh, that would be really nice to have. The perfected ability to make right decisions. Prudence is connected with wisdom. Prudence means that I see things the way they truly are. Some of us might remember in the Old Testament when Solomon has this dream from the Lord. The Lord puts him into a trance. It's after he's been made king by his father David, and the Lord appears to him and says, Solomon, ask me for anything, and I will give it to you. Remember Solomon's answer? Wisdom. What a dumb answer. Man, you could have had the world, you know, women, power, money, riches. You asked for wisdom? You had the king of creation in front of you. He ain't going to give you anything you want, and you said, wisdom. He chose poorly. No, he chose really well. Why did he choose so well? Because wisdom is the capacity to see things the way they really are. And if I don't see things the way they really are, I will never know how to live. So if I'm not prudent, I can never be just, I can never be courageous, and I can never be temperate. Because prudence enables me to see reality. Justice. Justice can be defined as the habit by which a man renders to each person his due. Obviously, you need to know prudence, or you need to be prudent in order to be just. If you can't see what someone is justly due, you can't be just to them. So prudence becomes key all the time. Fortitude. Fortitude is the readiness to fall in battle, even to die. The highest expression of fortitude is martyrdom. It is essential for a Christian to be courageous. But in order to be courageous, you have to know what's worth dying for. So you must be prudent. You must be able to see things the way they really are. Fortitude or courage doesn't mean that you are fearless. The courageous man or the courageous woman might be very fearful, but I'm not motivated by what I do out of fear, nor am I motivated to be courageous because I'm concerned with what you're going to think about me. Courage is motivated by prudent understanding of reality and the understanding that this is worth dying for. So the saints and the fathers of the church would always say that the Christian should be willing to die rather than to commit one mortal sin. And now all of a sudden, fortitude looks out of reach. (laughs) That's how far we've come, unfortunately, or how far we've moved away from an accurate understanding of what it means to be courageous. Because sin comes our way, and our response oftentimes is, ah, this is really no big deal. Now the saints would tell us, the doctors of the church would tell us, we should be willing to die rather than to offend the one who loves us so much that he made us, that he became man for us, that he died for us, that he's offering us mercy, forgiveness, and the abundance of eternal life. Key for prudence is patience and endurance. Peter defines it as a vigorous clinging to the good and an unwillingness to be deterred by compromise. So often we see that in our culture. We see people who fight and fight and fight and fight, and then they're just beaten up, and they go, you know what, the heck with it, we'll just give in, or we'll compromise. There is no compromise between good and evil. What does God have to do with Satan? Nothing. There is no compromise between matters like that. Other issues, you're not talking about things that are as serious, but there can be no compromise in us. That's what we should aspire to anyway, between good and evil. Hopefully that sounds attractive, especially as men. I can't answer from the way a woman thinks, but I know as a man, when we sin, the experience of sin is, oh, gosh, I just bailed. I just turned coward is what I did. There was something in front of me, an opportunity to do the good or to avoid the wrong, and rather than do the good, I just said, ah, the heck with it. 
and I said something I shouldn't have said, or I thought something I shouldn't have thought, or I did something I shouldn't have done, and that's experienced as intensely shameful because you were a coward. I was a coward when God made me to be courageous, even though it might be very difficult and may require my life. Lastly is temperance. For all the virtues, and obviously I'm going an extreme thumbnail for the cardinal virtues, I cannot encourage you enough to read Pieper's book and to start with temperance, even though prudence is the most important. And I want to read just a couple of things from him. Temperance is, uh, is that virtue which disposes various parts of us into a unified whole. It is the virtue of a mature man. It's a man who lives a well-ordered, peaceful, interiorly calm life which so many men and women don't live. Pieper says, uh, It is a commonplace, though nonetheless mysterious truth, that man's inner order, unlike that of the crystal, the flower, or the animal, is not a simply given and self-evident reality, but rather that the same forces from which human existence derives its being can upset that inner order to the point of destroying the spiritual and moral person. That this cleavage in human nature, provided we do not try to persuade ourselves that it does not exist, finds its explanation only in the acceptance by faith of the revealed truth of original sin is too vast a subject to be discussed here. It seems necessary, however, to consider more closely the structure of that inner order and disorder. This is a very profound passage worth meditating on. Most difficult to grasp is the fact that it is indeed the essential human self that is capable of throwing itself into disorder to the point of self-destruction. When we live intemperately, that's what we're doing. I am choosing to be self-destructive, and I know it. That's tragic. That should be unattractive. I have a friend of mine who battles crack. I lost a brother-in-law to crack, but I have a friend of mine who battles crack. His wife's come home, found the furniture sold. His wife's come home, found the car sold. His wife has come home and found his clothes sold. His wife has come home and found that he has sold himself so that he can get a hit. And at one point, I remember being with them, and he said to her, after she was yelling at him, saying, how can you do this? And he looked at her and says, do you think I enjoy this? I am so stuck in a behavior I know is self-destructive, in a behavior I know cannot deliver what it intends, because every crack addict knows that you can never replicate the first tie that you had when you first tried it. Talk about a demonic drug. It is physiologically impossible to replicate the high, and they know it, And they still engage in self-destructive behavior. And all of us can do the same thing with something less harmful, perhaps, than crack. Man is not really a battlefield of conflicting forces and impulses which conquer one another. And if we say that the sensuality in us gets the better of our reason, this is only a vague and metaphorical manner of speaking. Rather, it is always our single self that is chaste or unchaste, temperate or intemperate, self-preserving or self-destructive. It is always the decisive center of the whole indivisible person by which the inner order is upheld or upset. It's just me. I can choose either to be self-destructive or self-preserving. A little bit later on he writes, The being of man in its essential significance consists in this, to be in accord with reason. If therefore a man keeps to what is in accord with reason, he is said to keep himself in himself. Unchastity destroys in a very special manner this self-possession and this human keeping of oneself in oneself. Unchaste abandon and the self-surrender of the soul to the world of sensuality paralyzes the primordial powers of the moral person. It paralyzes the ability to perceive, in silence, the call of reality, and to make, in the retreat of this silence, the decision appropriate to the concrete situation of concrete action. This is the meaning in all those propositions which speak of the falsification and corruption of prudence, of the blindness of the spirit, and of the splitting of the power of decisions. So what does unchastity do within us? It splits our capacity to decide. And the reason that I spend a little bit more time on temperance is simply because in the culture in which you and I are living, we have a drastic need for temperance. We all do. To learn how to live this calm inner life where we don't live out kind of knee-jerk reactions. Maybe a last passage here from Pieper. Chastity as control is only a tentative sketch. Chastity as temperance is perfected realization. The first is less perfect than the second because by the former, the directing power of reason has been able to mold only the conscious will, but not yet the sensual urge. Whereas by the latter, will and urge are both stamped with rational order. In Thomas's explicit opinion, the effort of self-control pertains only to the less perfect steps of the beginner. Whereas real perfected virtue 
by the very nature of its concept, bears the joyous, radiant seal of ease, of effortlessness. Wouldn't it be great to live that way in the midst of this hyper-sexualized culture that we're living in right now? Let's touch a little bit, at least, on the theological virtues. Theological virtues because they have God as their object. That's why we call them the theological virtues. And they are, of course, faith, hope, and love. Faith is that virtue which enables one to know God and all that he has revealed. There's kind of three senses. In a general sense, faith is a feeling of trust in or reliance on someone. In a biblical sense, faith is that act by which we receive God's own eternal life. And in the most technical sense, faith is the act of the intellect prompted by the will by which we believe the truth of all that God has revealed on the basis of the authority of the one who revealed it. The point to stress here is that faith is the act of entrusting myself to God. That's faith. The man or the woman with faith hands himself over to God, believing that all that he has said is true, and that God is faithful and that he keeps his promises. The opposite of faith is not doubt. Doubt often can lead to faith or to a deepening of faith. The opposite of faith is the refusal to believe. And in his book, Back to Virtue, he has this little sentence. He says, uh, much of what is written about faith is needlessly complex. The word yes is the simplest thing to say. So Mary's the embodiment of faith. Gabriel comes to Mary with the announcement, and Mary's response is, do it. I'm yours, whatever you want, because I trust you. She's the model of faith. Hope. Hope is that virtue that enables one to desire God above all things and to trust him for our salvation. Hope is like headlights. It allows us to see in the dark. The culture is driving a car with no lights on. We're trying to be optimistic. Hope is not optimism. I'm not optimistic about where we're going right now. But that doesn't mean I'm not hopeful. Our hope is not wishful thinking. Our hope is rooted in the things that God has done for us in his son. That's why I have hope. Because he is so faithful and he is so merciful and he is so good that he has become one of us and offered up his life for us and that he has promised all that he has promised and he's given me reasons to trust that he will do what he has said he would do because he's done everything else. So I'm not optimistic about that. I hope in the Lord who has acted in history and has shown himself to be deserving of my trust. We oftentimes use hope very much in the sense of the culture, which simply means wishful thinking. Hope is not wishful thinking. Someone came to me the other day, was talking about how we pray for people who have died. And when we go to mass for funeral masses and says, can we say something more than we hope? And I said, you you don't understand what that means. We're not like wishfully thinking that they're saved. We hope in their salvation. It doesn't get any higher than that. Hope is an anchor. It's a rock because the rock is Christ. The opposite of hope is despair. And lastly, love. Love is that virtue that enables one to love as God himself loves. Both God above all things and one's neighbor as oneself. It is quite simply the greatest thing there is. In the end, there are these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. You can't fall in love any more than you can fall out of love. You can fall into feelings. You can't fall into love. Love is a decision of my will. It is to will for the other person that which is good for them. It's not mere kindness. It's action. It's sometimes interruptive, annoying, unnerving. It doesn't sit back on the sidelines when there's trouble. When someone's heading towards a cliff, the loving thing to do is to run and to tackle them, even though it might be experienced as a very painful, abrupt event. It's a loving thing to do. Jesus says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And the opposite of love is something like apathy, to just not care, to not even notice. It's not so much hate. It's more just to pay no attention to you. I give you this little quote, which I found to be a a great expression. This is worth cutting out and putting on our refrigerators, I think. This comes from his book, Fundamentals of the Faith. Faith is like an anchor. That's why it must be conservative, even a stick in the mud, like an anchor. Faith must be faithful. Hope is like a compass or a navigator. It gives us direction. It takes its bearings from the stars. That's why it must be progressive and forward-looking. Love is like a sail spread to the wind. It is the actual energy of our journey. That's why it must be liberal, open to the Spirit's wind, and generous. I was thinking of how to end tonight as we run through the virtues and the vices. I thought I'd end with a story of a person who taught me the most about virtue was a five- or six-year-old boy. This is back in the mid or late 90s, and I was having dinner with some folks in the parish where I was at the time, and it was the mom and the dad and their young son. 
for most of the dinner, it's just myself and the mom and dad talking, and we're having you know an adult conversation, whatever. And the little boy is just sitting there, and then out of the blue, as we're having dessert, he just blurts out, "I used to be afraid of the dark." <laughs> and I went, "Okay." And he said, "Every night I used to sleep with the lights on." And then one night, my daddy came in and he turned off the light, and I had to fake courage, and I got it. And then he went back to eating. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, you have just learned how to get virtue, because the way you get virtue is you begin by having to fake it, take chastity. The way the devil plays with us, you know, we're trying to grow in chastity, and we're fighting temptations or whatnot. And the little accuser, he's in the back of our minds, and he says, you don't want to be chased. This is such a charade. You don't want to do this. And the appropriate response is, you're exactly right. I don't. <laughs> but I'm, my will is going to drag my feelings and my desires to do the right thing, just like you know that little boy spent however many weeks or months with the covers over his head with the lights off, shaking, going, I'm not afraid, I am not afraid, I am not afraid. And then one day, the covers just didn't go over his head, and he was not afraid. His will had won with God's grace. And so as we try to grow in virtue, I think it's important to realize the way the evil one tries to spin this for us is he just tries to call us frauds and hypocrites. But you and I aren't frauds and hypocrites, not if we're not... Not if we're actually acknowledging the reality. You're right, I'm, I'm not all that humble. I know that. I'm trying to get that way. <laughs> you know, I'm not loving. You're right. I'm trying to get that way. So be sensitive to the way the evil one will try to deceive us. He's just trying to get you and me into a pit. That's his game. Don't let him get you into the pit. It's okay to acknowledge we're frauds. <laughs> Okay, But we're frauds trying to get to saintliness. The way to get there is to first acknowledge we're not there. And then to know that we need help, and that help is available, and that if we will cooperate with God's grace and work hard, we will achieve the goal, which is to become a perfected man or woman. So let's maybe spend some time this week just asking the Lord to show us whatever it is that we're really wrestling with, huh? whatever virtue we aspire to, whatever of the deadly sins that might particularly have its you know, teeth into us or its hold into us. And just ask the Lord maybe to hold up the ideal opposed to that so that we can see something that's attractive, which will motivate us to go, I don't want to live that freedom poorly. I want to live freedom excellently. I don't want to fail. I want to live well. And let's trust that his grace is with us enabling us to do that. This has been Christ is the Answer program number 742. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506. For program number 742, Virtues and Vices. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.